This weekend, Retronauts, all the losers of the World Cup rally together as one. everyone welcome to episode 25 of the third season of retronauts yeah this is i'm sad to say my final retronauts episode bam for this season and then there will be next season and we're still sorting out the details on that but oh yes there will be another season if only because there's still a lot of kickstarter stuff we haven't fulfilled yet so yeah I'm Jeremy Parrish, and in the studio far from me, we have... Uh, Ray Barnhold here, and with me also are... I'm Bob Mackey, and I have to say, God save the Queen. (laughs) And I'm Jazz Rignon, and I I am obligated to say, God save the Queen, too. (laughs) Oh my goodness, such such an amazing (laughs) accent. How uncanny. It's almost as though we brought in someone specifically from the United Kingdom to talk about the UK gaming scene of the 1980s, as many people have complained to us that we haven't done. Well, here we are. Yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> I think now that Jazz is here, we can't do bad British accents. Nope. So no. he's, he's here to prevent that, partially, I think. <laughs> no, yeah, we can only yeah. do good British accents. But we can't, so yeah. we won't. Yep. Mm-hmm. I will be your resident Brit ringer for the evening. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So yeah, I mean this this episode is um well one it's a backer requested episode requested by Mike Wasson. And um it's also kind of a way to rectify some long running ro- no to yes, to rectify some long running wrongs. Wow, that sounded really weird. Um people have have complained to us since the very beginning of Retronauts back when we were little Retronauts pups that we don't talk enough about British gaming history. And there's a really good reason for that. It's because we're not British, and we grew up in America, and that's what we know. And it's difficult to speak authoritatively about something that you didn't experience. And also because the British gaming scene in the 80s was pretty insular, like literally insular, because it happened on an <laughs> island. And those, those games and those systems didn't really make their way off that island. And it, it makes an interesting counterpart or, or counterpoint, I think, to Japanese games, which were also very insular, but only in the literal sense, because they did make their way west. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. And uh, if you guys don't mind bearing with me while I kind of run this down, yeah. this isn't like an excuse or anything. It's just kind of, a, you know, British gaming in, in the 80s is very much its own specific niche and it was a very small niche that was very passionate but also kind of cut off from everyone else and i I think if you look back to the history of of console gaming and the way things happened and and shook out in america um you kind of get a sense for for why that happened Uh, i don't know if you guys agree but like if you look at japanese developers uh, they they really took to arcade development uh, early in the 70s. I mean, one of the first major arcade games was Space Invaders, which was 1978 and was by Taito, a Japanese company. And they became a pretty big powerhouse in the arcades. And arcades lend themselves to games that I think, you know, kind of transcend language boundaries, or at least in the early days. Uh, they were like pick up and play. You had to look at the screen, grasp what you had to do oh. and immediately get it. 
And so, you know, language wasn't really an issue. And I think the Japanese design aesthetic, for whatever reason, is really good at kind of focusing in on one or two very specific things and uh, just kind of polishing up those, polishing those things up to a razor sharp edge. Um, so I think it's kind of natural that Japanese games began to migrate out of Japan and make their way across the, you know, across the Pacific to the U.S. and you know to the U.K. And um, it was also natural that once people started converting arcade games to home consoles, that those things began to show up on home systems uh, under license, you know, to on Atari or ColecoVision mm. or Intellivision. Um, I don't know. You guys with me here so far? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, <laughs> those are definitely all things that I've noticed, too, when I do my own little looking back in history of this stuff. Well, I think one of the sort of the things that sort of interests me is, is that sort of the arcade movement came out of Japan I think you know the U.S. picked up on it fairly quickly thereafter. Um, you know, with, with particularly with Atari, and over in Europe, we had a kind of a different culture there. Um, since gambling is legal of any age, you know, most arcades in, in particularly in the U.K. but but across Europe, are packed with slot machines. Hmm. Very technically sort of interesting ones that allow you to do all sorts of things, you know, double your money, nudge reels and that kind of stuff. So all the technology was put into that. So so I think any manufacturer at the time who thought about making arcade machines basically looked at the, the, the math of it and kind of went, you know, square footage, arcade machine, mm, we're not sure whether these, 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 these new video games are actually going to bring in the money that the slot machines do. So, nah, we're not that interested in it. So, you know, sort of... Uh, arcade machines really kind of slowly trickled in over the first sort of two to three years, and then of course then 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 took off. By which time it was too late for for any kind of European technology company to to, to compete with the Japanese and, and and the American company. So, in terms of sort of the very 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 early days, um, I think you know Europe was kind of taken out of the running um, just because of the sort of the, the culture of arcades. Yeah, that's that's actually something I've always wondered about. Yeah, that's an interesting historical footnote. I had no idea about the gambling issue, so it does explain a lot. Yeah, like you never hear about, oh, those great British video arcade games of the 80s. That's just not something that ever enters the gaming lexicon. I'd always kind of wondered about that, but that makes sense. You know, they just weren't profitable <laughs> or as profitable mm. as certain other ventures could have been. Yeah. So the, I think the other the other side of that is the home market, which, of course, in 1982-83 completely collapsed in America. And that's right around the time that really the, the, the computer and the games industries were starting to sort of pick up steam elsewhere in the world. I mean, 1983 in Japan saw the advent of the Nintendo Famicom, the Sega SG-1000, the MSX Computer Standard. So, you know, that was kind of like when they had their boom, and that was right as America basically lost all influence in video gaming. And uh, the UK, the, the major systems that launched there launched in 1982-83 also, but those were all, you know, 8-bit microcomputers. And on the technical end of things, they were actually kind of a step behind already. Uh, uh, if you if you compare, the, like, the, the Spectrum to the Commodore 64, which launched, I think, a year after the Spectrum... Um, like there's there's no comparison. The Spectrum was really really like it was kind of sold on the fact that it had color, but it had like it could display what I think four colors at a time, and there there couldn't be any overlap. Like sprites could only be one color, <laughs> so it was uh it was extremely limited. And it was yeah it was eight 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 plus eight. They were also very affordable, and uh, that made them very appealing. I think to the to the the homegrown audience. 
uh, yeah, American American computers tended to be import, uh, expensive to import, not only because of the actual cost of the machines, but also because of import duties and things like that. So, you know, it kind of made sense for the UK scene to uh, sort of grow up around local solutions to the problem of what kind of computers do we use? And so uh, there was actually a really thriving, very specific market in the UK. Um, and I, I feel like based on everything that I've read, all the research I've done, the four big systems in the 80s in the UK were the Sinclair Spectrum, the ZX Spectrum, or ZX, sorry, uh, <laughs> the Amstrad CPC, the Commodore 64, and the Acorn BBC Micro. Jazz, were there any others that I'm not thinking of there? It seems like that's kind of the ones I always hear about. Yeah, I mean, those are the main ones. There was actually a slew of, of, of very unusual computers which kind of didn't make it. I mean, because you, you, you're talking about the sort of the early to mid-'80s boom, and, um, you know, there was a computer called the Dragon 32. There mm-hmm. was one called the Oric. Mm-hmm. Um, there was also one called the Jupiter Ace, which was, I believe, a Fortran microcomputer. Well, it didn't have BASIC. It actually had Fortran. <laughs> wow. Um, so, so you actually had these... Wow, power for the people. Yeah. <laughs> so you had these, uh, these, these sort of, like... Mini micros, and and like you said, I mean, a, a lot of it was based around price. Um, the early eighties was the it was the Thatcher years. Britain was in the grip of um, a pretty bad uh, economic depression. Uh, there wasn't much money around. Uh, you know, uh, something like an Atari with a with a disk drive. Uh, you know, and, and a monitor would would set you back. You know, a thousand pounds. You know, I, I think sort of things things like having to modify them for the British PAL system didn't didn't help prices either. And so you sort of had these homegrown systems that were. You know, very intelligently designed, quite innovative in terms of using simple components um, that allowed these computers to be built for sort of around about £140 or so. Hmm. Um, and that kind of that under 150 quid was was a sort of a, a threshold that really um, seemed affordable for most. The other thing which which sort of uh, doesn't get taken into consideration much is is sort of the the, the, a strange sort of quirk of, of 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 the UK, which is, you know, Mum, can I have a video game system? No, you bloody well can't. Mum, can I have a computer that will help me with my schoolwork? Oh, yes, you can, uh-huh. little Johnny. And that was a huge selling point for the computer for computers in the UK. Was yeah. was just you know this sort of so called uh, you know educational benefit, and so the parents kind of uh, were fooled into thinking that. Their kid was going to get a, a leg up at school, which actually for some was true. But for the most part, you know, they were just video game systems with keyboards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we saw that with the Intellivision and ColecoVision, like the lifestyle software, whatever you want to yeah, call it. Kind of went in a different order, but yeah, yeah, when they tried to bolt on, that's computer stuff. And yeah, I mean, that was definitely sounds like the case in the UK. But yeah, the education part seemed to be just a big push sort of all over the world where microcomputers are being sold. Um, but yeah, from the sound of it, maybe more so in the UK, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the mom convincing side of it, more shopping lists. Yeah, yeah. I'm not surprised to hear about all the um, the sort of also ran systems, the, the the panoply of those, because that was that was also the case in the US and in Japan. I mean, you know, the the market still hadn't shaken out, and and really the PC market didn't really consolidate until the 90s with Windows 3.1, um, but it is interesting to kind of look at all these other systems that I've I've heard about but don't really know anything about.
Yeah, actually, Jazz, you mentioned something about uh, the PAL conversions. I think I think that is something people tend to overlook is the fact that once consoles did start to take off in the West, by the West I mean America, um, you know, you had Nintendo and you had Sega, and all of those were built built around the common standard, the transmission broadcast standard that America and Japan shared in TSC. But the UK had uh, PAL. Most of Europe had PAL, actually. And that offered, I think, higher resolution, more colors, but uh, it also ran at a slower uh, refresh rate. So, or maybe it was reversed or something like that. Yeah. But in, the, in any case, I know that... The PAL standard is, I think, 24 frames per second. And, um, yeah. Oh, so, like, yeah, it was more. It was closer to um, to motion picture standards. Right. In terms of the frame rate, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so games would come over to the UK, and so that actually caused outbound problems from the UK too, because you had a lot of games that were being built around a sixty hertz refresh rate, um, mm-hmm. and you know, or the, I mean, essentially the PAL format um, gave you a little bit of a few extra cycles of, of of CPU time. Apparently, I'm not that technically minded. I'm just kind of going from <laughs> what, what I understood over the years. Yeah. Um, so what it allowed you to do, particularly later on, I mean, there was a there was a very very strong hacking mentality that came out of of Europe. You know, like really trying to there was this sort of people just competed with one another to try and sort of one-up each other on sort of technical tricks and things like that. And partic- Right, the demo scene. Yeah, and particularly by the sort of the mid to late 80s, um, you know, people were doing crazy things like being able to um, position sprites in the border on, on a Commodore 64 so that, that, that you could actually have this full screen effect. Mm. Um, you could also sort of use this sort of raster interrupt to create a, a full screen effect on, on, on a... Um, a horizontal screen, um, sort of again extending the picture beyond the actual border of the the system, and it stuff like that. It looked incredible. It worked brilliantly. Um, it really sort of helped create the sort of extra wow about the computers and sort of extend the life. But of course, as soon as you plugged it into an American system, it did not work at all. <laughs> um, so if anything, you had to completely remodify your code, and if you did, it would run horribly slowly and crap. And and so I think that this helped, you know create that additional isolation that, that you were talking about at the beginning. You know, it's, we're just running on different, literally speaking different languages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I know there, there's kind of a, a, a little bit of a bitterness with a lot of, uh, of UK gamers about the fact that NT, NTSC games were not usually converted over to PAL format to, uh, to the, the uh, you know, changed from 60 Hertz or megahertz. And, um, the result was, you know, games that ran at weird speeds. They sounded terrible. Like they just weren't playable. It was, it was like playing defective games, basically. So yeah, obviously that didn't catch on because who wants to play really, really crappy, you know, games that have really terrible performance when you could play other games that were designed for your market, your technology that didn't suffer from all those defects. So it was, it was kind of, I think, you know. I think Nintendo was especially bad about it. I think Sega was better at mm. uh, doing the conversions. That's the the impression I've gotten. But Nintendo just kind of didn't care because it seems like Nintendo's never really had that much concern about the European market until maybe just recently. Um, but yeah, that 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 definitely, like you said, really sort of uh, increased the isolation uh, of both markets. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it really wasn't until the uh, 
until the 90s that the UK standards finally started to fade away because there never was a really successful follow-up to the Sinclair Spectrum. The Amiga was the follow-up to the C64, but was really, really expensive and out of most people's price range. And so consoles started to catch on a bit, especially the Genesis. And uh, of course, the PC standards solidified around DOS Windows 3.0 or 3.1 because that happened everywhere in the world at that time. Yeah, the, it was sort of interesting in the late 90s. I mean, the collapse of the the British games industry, essentially. Um, <clears throat> you're right, you know, the sort of, I think that the, 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 the industry put its... Uh, it's eggs in the Amiga and Atari ST markets, and you know, uh, like it, like it was just just at the beginning of the decade. These machines were expensive, and I think this time around, parents understood that that kids use their game their, their their computers as games machines, and so given a choice between a sort of a four hundred pound computer and a hundred pound console. The cheaper option again seemed the better one. So, you know, I, th- I think that that was part part of it. The other thing was just the attractiveness of the games. You know, something that was odd about you know being in the UK was you know it really was a sort of a third world gaming country in terms of the mm-hmm. eyes of Sega and Nintendo. Um, you know, Nintendo had its home market. They had the American market, which was far far bigger. It was making huge amounts of money there, and uh, you know, initially, it just it it really didn't wasn't wasn't interested in in in, in launching officially, yeah. uh, in in the UK, and so so they gave distribution rights to Mattel, who just did a god awful job of marketing the machine. Yeah. Sega, of course, you know, out in the states wasn't doing particularly well. Um, and then suddenly realized, oh, wait, there's that, that, that funny Europe place over there. And so they started bringing in the master system, which it took a while to take off. It took a good two, two years to, to really begin to take off. But once people got bored of, of, of their Spectrums and their Commodores, um, you know, they began to look at the, the master system, first of all, and, and, and that began to pick up. But by that time, you know, you already had the, the, the Genesis or Mega Drive on the horizon. And... You know, so so sort of magazines like the ones that I was working at were, were beginning to talk about you know these these amazing new sixteen bit consoles like the PC Engine and things like that, yeah. um, and that's really where the excitement was at. You know, it was, it was difficult to get excited about an Amiga that was already at that point about four or five years old and really hadn't kind of reached critical mass. You know, there were games on it, but they just kind of didn't quite have. It's difficult to, to describe it, but they just the, the quality wasn't always there. There were a few standout games. You know, companies like Cygnosis were making these kind of big standout games, but most yeah. games were sort of just felt a little bit like you know what we'd played before, marginally better. Um, but then you know, you talk about what was coming out on 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 Mega Drive and and sort of talk about things like Altered Beast, particularly in the early days, where, you know, UK was very arcade crazy. And so these sort of, mm. you know, ports like R-Type and, and, and Altered Beast were seen as like, holy shit, that's awesome. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> but then, you know, I, I wonder, though, like, how do you, how do you, uh, like, reconcile the incredible, like, longevity of the spectrum? Because it lasted so long. I mean, I guess it was just, like, the de facto cheap option for so long, right? Because the games were just, like, a couple of pounds at the time, right? And so... Yeah, I mean, it really became that sort of, you know, you could buy a spectrum for 30 quid and right. and, and, and get a thousand games, hmm. you know, with yeah. it. And, and, and I think, 
it's funny because sometimes I, I forget about actually about how long some of those machines lasted. I mean, they, they yeah. you know they lasted into the well into the nineties for some people. They still kept playing, you know. And what also happened at the time was kind of an interesting, just again a sort of a cultural quirk. I mean, you know, magazines are big in England. Obviously, there's sort of a newsagent magazine store on, on every street corner. Hmm. And what began to happen in probably you know eighty nine ninety is that magazines. Um, covering the Spectrum and, and the C64 began to put uh, cover tapes on, mm-hmm. on the front and, and, and oh, they, yeah. they began to get smaller and smaller and smaller so you'd end up with a sort of a, a 16 page magazine <laughs> which wasn't really a magazine but that had five free games on the front you know and, and, and so these publishers were kind of going around um, to, uh, you know in some cases sort of fairly recent games publishers and saying you know if this game isn't selling anymore we'll give you a little bit of money or a, a cut uh-huh. um, and we'll put them on, on, on our cover cassette and you had all sorts of stuff I mean there was even a at one point a mini Zork game, which is a unique Zork game that was kind of made for for for, for uh, a magazine that I worked on in the mid eighties. Uh, mm. But as it was kind of dying, it it was kind of trying to be interesting and creative and kind of curating these sort of older games or sort of unusual games. And and they managed to get this this mini Zork game that uh, oh. is actually now quite collectible because it's it was only available through. Through this magazine on a tape, most of which got thrown away. <laughs> I see. Yeah. I don't know if those tapes are uh, in good shape, though. By this point. Oh yeah, they're, they're yeah. <laughs> probably. I, I assume someone backed it up. Demagnetized. Yeah, yeah I yeah. think I think you can. Um, it's it's being you know, it's elevated yeah. these days. That's just crazy to think of that, that you know a magazine would, in some small way, sort of like keep a keep a platform going. <laughs> Wouldn't, wouldn't happen so much here. No, no. <laughs> Don't underestimate the price of free games. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, although I mean, the PC was doing fine in the early to mid '90s, and I I bought PC Gamer just to get 20 demos a week. You know? Yeah, yeah. And they weren't well, even yeah. full games. Like, what the hell is this weird thing? I'll play it for five minutes. And yeah, move on. But also, like a CD is as you know much thinner than the magazine. Yeah, <laughs> as opposed yeah. to a cassette. Not only would a magazine not keep platforms alive, platforms can't even keep magazines alive here. Oh, man. Yeah. No, I'm no. sad. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Bummer. Well, Jazz, I wanted to I wanted to ask you specifically. I feel like you have a really unique perspective on things because you were in the gaming press in the UK in the eighties, and and looking back, I've seen scans and and copies of uh, you know some of your old reviews that you've written, and it seems like contrary to the sort of I guess perception that the UK press was really down on Japanese consoles, most of your reviews of games like Mega Man and whatever were really really positive. Like it was pretty clear that you really enjoyed playing those games. Um, so to me, that that's interesting because there's kind of I don't know like a stereotype or perception that the UK was just like, oh, Japanese console games, those are stupid. But that doesn't really seem to be the case if you actually, you know, read the text. No, that's what we do now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's Japan funny. In the 80s is America and the teens. Yeah, <laughs> you know, the I think what kind of happened was was 
there, there, there was this kind of very elitist movement in the very late 80s that, you know, you had these these people that had kind of gone out and bought Amigas and, and, and Atari STs at, you know, a great price. We're seeing these yeah. consoles coming along and, you know, so you had sort of people, you know, journalists that were saying, look at this, this is better than Amiga. Yeah. You know, this, this, mm-hmm. this conversion of this game is better than the Amiga version. So there sort of became this sort of running battle, which, you know, I think historically in any culture there is a sort of a console war battle. You know, in the UK in the early 80s, it was this this crazy, you know, ZX Spectrum versus Commodore 64, you know, quite bitter sort of arguments about things. And, and then sort of in the late 90s, it, it, it became about this sort of, you know, outgoing, what really were outgoing, very expensive computers that really hadn't ever achieved their potential. And they were being usurped by these new machines that, that were coming in. And, you know, you definitely had some sort of splits in the press. I think you had, you, you did have sort of uh, PC owners, I think, and, you know, the magazines that were covering micros that were kind of staring kind of their own death in the face, basically. Mm-hmm. And so, they, they, of course, they had their own agenda, which is keeping their magazines alive. And then he had, you know, computer and video games, which I was working on at the time. You know, I mean, that's all we were interested in. We really didn't care about, you know, the Amiga and stuff. And when these games would come in, we'd just give them out to freelancers because we really couldn't be bothered. <laughs> what we were interested in is 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 the stuff that you actually couldn't get, the import games. And, and that's all we did, call around importers. What have you got? What's coming out? Trying to figure out... Um, you know, looking at Japanese magazines and not understanding a word of it, but just looking at pictures kind of going, I think that's this game and trying to figure out when it was coming out and then sort of talking to importers like, what's this and when can we have it? Um, yeah. You know, and it was that was very, very exciting when, when we got this, the Super Nintendo in for the first time. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, the entire building stopped and kind of came up and watched it being plugged in and we, we played Mario and, you know, yeah. and it was that that was a real event. I'm wondering how much do you think um, uh, nationalism played into the popularity of certain brands just because that's what we experienced in America where we had to keep the idea that these companies were Japanese a secret because there was still anti-Japanese sentiment lingering from the war and other other events like that. Th- did that factor in at all to um, the popularity of certain brands like – the Britishness of them? No, it's funny. Not, not, not in not in the slightest. In fact, quite the opposite. You know, mm-hmm. if it comes from Japan, it's got to be cool. You okay, know? I mean, well, re- re- you guys re- had much more open minds than we did. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> American. I don't know. There were there was a lot of there was a lot of cool Japan mindsets happening in the U.S. True, you, you heard a lot about the the anti Japanese sentiment, but there were just as many people. You know. Like you had your William Gibsons who were like, all my stories have to be written in future Japan because Japan's the future. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, with with Japan, you know, it came came a sort of a, a certain style that, that, you know, obviously this sort of you know, anime manga style. A lot of people have never seen it before. So around about the same time that these games came in, you know, manga and and, and anime started taking off. You know, uh, you know, I remember getting Akira for the first time and watching that and just kind of like being absolutely blown away. Yeah. I didn't quite know what was going on, but you know, <laughs> it, you know, it was it was really cool. Even even when it's translated, you still don't know quite. What's yeah, going on. it's just just nuts. And and then we got a whole bunch. Of, a, a, a distributor decided to 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 actually sort of start up a company to bring in movies and they've just brought in 
a whole bunch of movies and gave them to us, the, the, the magazine, and just said, can you watch these and tell us which ones you think are good <laughs> and which ones aren't? So, of course, you know, we had to sit through a few sort of like weird tentacle sex strange movies. Oh, sure, you'll get that. Well, yeah. yeah, which we sort of said, well, you know what, you should release that one. I forget what it's called, uh, Legend of the Overfiend. Which oh, is, uh, okay. Uh, Uroots uh, Godoji or yeah. whatever. I'm glad Jeremy said the actual name because I just cleared my... Uh, <laughs> I've never seen it. I just know it by reputation. Yeah, yeah. I can say that sincerely. I, I can't unsee it, but you know, we said, "Oh, you should just release this for fun." And you know, of course, it became notorious and helped promote you know, anime yeah. as a thing, and 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 it really began to get popular. So, yeah. so you know, th- there was definitely a sort of a, this sort of odd cultural swing towards Japan, um, and in fact, you know, there people were less interested in American games. So. Yes. I think the company um, Manga International or Manga whatever they're yeah. are they British? I thought they were British. Uh no, I think um isn't that the one that Robert Woodhead started? Mm, I don't know. Uh, I can't remember. Uh, and he was Canadian, I think. He was with Surtech. And he made the wizardry games and then was like, Japan's really cool. I'm gonna go open an anime company. Yeah. Um <laughs> maybe that maybe that wasn't I feel like that was. Hmm. Yeah. That, that could be them. Maybe it was that, based that in the UK. That was them that sent us the stuff. So maybe it was a, a sort of a new a, a British startup of the Canadian company yeah. or American company. I mean, I don't know the I don't don't it, know the full history there because I'm not an anime scholar. Yeah, in our defense, we're a video game show. I was just reading yeah, about this recently. We're going to kickstart uh, manga knots. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I, I think it's interesting that you were talking about this sort of schism in the UK press, kind of like the people who were uh, a little – had a little bit of a chip on their shoulder as they stared death in the face versus the people who were like, Japan console games, really cool. Like To me, that's kind of a little familiar right now where you have the mainstream gaming press staring death in the face, looking at free-to-play games and mobile games and things that we can't really make money off of by writing about. Um, so there does seem to be a lot of that kind of resentment, you know, in the press and in gamers who are drawn to the more traditional hardcore style, if you want to call it that. And then you have, you know, the, the section of the gaming press that's like indie games. Cool. These are really different. These, this is something new. And, uh, of course they end up getting called hipsters because they like something that's not part of the mainstream. Ah, yes. Maybe I'm just, uh, maybe I'm just reading too much into this, but it, it seems like, um, (laughs) cycles of history tend to repeat themselves. I was about to say exactly the same thing. One thing about history you can guarantee is it will repeat itself at some point. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there's certain, certain, yeah, lots of similarities there. Hmm. Now that we've sort of laid down the groundwork here, um, thank you for your perspective and input on that jazz because it came off a lot better than I could have done on my own. Um, (laughs) I think what I'd like to do now is just kind of go through sort of a chronology of major events that I've kind of isolated to the best of my ability from the, the 80s in the UK and just talk about those individual little factors and kind of their importance in the big scene. We don't have to talk in depth about any of these, maybe this the spectrum, but um, just kind of like to get some perspective on the way things sort of evolved and what was important. 
So, uh, actually, I'm cheating a little bit and going back before the 80s and looking at 1978 when Acorn's Acorn Computer was founded. Um, if I'm not mistaken, that was kind of the first big breakout UK-based technology or, you know, computer manufacturer. Is that right? Yeah, I believe so. Um, you had a sort of a, a bunch of sort of do-it-yourself computers you could kind of buy the bits and and, and put stuff together um right, right. but but acorn i think was you know, definitely one of the first to sort of really begin to sort of build computers and, and and make sort of stuff that wasn't just sort of you can program this to make lights flash well and and their yeah. first their first system was one of those the uh, in 1979 the acorn system one um, I don't. I, I looked at this computer and was was reading about it, and I really don't get what it was for because it was like a bunch of circuits and wires, and then there was like a little LCD panel and a bunch of buttons, but not like a key. It wasn't quite a keypad, and it wasn't quite a keyboard. It was like twenty buttons. I I, I don't really get what that was about, <laughs> but but it was kind of a big deal because it was made for like you know, um, kind of at a professional level, but it was priced well enough that enthusiasts could afford to jump into it. And a lot of people, I think, made that their, their first computer, sort of like uh, people with, you know, the, the assembly kits that they bought in, in the U.S. in the mm. late 70s. Yeah, I think you could do things like, you know, make timers or, or kind of do, do kind of arithmetic and things like that on it. But it was all very sort of almost like the really early computers, you know, you sort of had to do certain things and it was it wasn't intuitive in any way. You had to re- sort of really love uh you know hacking things and and, and moving wires around to right. to want to use that thing. It it wasn't a computer in in in, in any way that we recognize them today. Like you already had to be an engineer for several years you know, <laughs> yeah. to actually to a be interested in it and b actually do something with it. Yeah, <laughs> and I think that was kind of that was funny because sort of about a year later you got the the first the first Spectrum or rather the first Sinclair computer, the ZX80, and and that that came in two formats. You could either buy a bag of bits. Or, or, yeah. or a fully built one, <laughs> and the built one obviously was more expensive. But um, but that actually, you know, had a, had a keyboard of sorts and and, and did a few things and, uh, and connected up to a to a TV so you could see stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but but so that was really kind of one of the first ones that that people could actually use, even though it didn't really do anything. You had to do, you know, you had to sort of. Do everything to it to make it do anything. Yeah. <laughs> so, so kind of like a really big, awkward TI calculator watch. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. So the um, the other thing I want to point to in 1978 was the formation of Melbourne House, which I guess technically is an Australian company, but had a really big presence in the UK scene. Um, eventually, Melbourne House became Chrome, and then it went away. But uh, they they made a lot of kind of uh, Games that were really big on, uh, I think on Spectrum. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, they um, they and Commodore sixty four. In fact, they kind of as 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 the eighties went on, you know, they sort of spread to all formats. But um, they, uh, I'm just trying to think. Did they do Way of the Exploding Fist? I think that might have been one of. Yeah, um, I believe so. Yeah, you know, sort of a <laughs> fighting game, a little bit like Karate Champ. Um, it actually was way of the exploding fist. I get that one mixed up with international karate, which was oh. uh, the slightly better later version. Yeah, but I mean that was that was right around the time that Data East released Karate Champ. So I mean they were kind of you know not not so much cloning and following, but being right up there at the forefront of developing this entire genre that would eventually go on to become a really big deal. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just trying to think of what else Melbourne House did in the early days. They've sort of um, they had a distributor in the UK at the beginning, but I can't remember who that was. My 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 mind is a bit fuzzy on that stuff. We were kind of a little bit more interested in the sort of the the, the sort of the homegrown stuff at, at that point, sort of on the ZX spectrum. So, so stuff like the you know the early rare games were obviously kind of seminal. Um, and, and really kind of put rare on the map and 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 sold many many games and uh, in a way you know games like um Lunar Jetman I think helped put computers on the map in terms of uh you know really credible games machines because something that sort of again is a sort of cultural thing and I think it happened out in the states too you know if you look at computer magazines in the early 80s they are just filled with type in listings of, oh yeah, yeah. Of, of crappy games that you'd spend two days typing in and then then, <laughs> then wait next month for the and here are the bugs that we or the things that we mistyped, <laughs> um, you know. And while I think a lot of people actually uh, played around with those and actually learned how to, to 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 you know program their machines and went on to to great things, um, you know, they were they were really fr- frustrating things to do, and people would spend a lot of time. Doing it and then kind of run the program and it would actually be a bit crap and and so I think people didn't just didn't want to do that they liked the idea of it initially and then realised what it actually entailed and then yeah. just kind of went you know what screw it just just give me a tape so I can load it into my computer. Yeah. they basically came with recipes for games but then they took like three days to cook yeah, yeah. Uh, hideous uh, <laughs> yeah the the, 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 the idea of, of uh, you kind of rolling your own code was appealing when we were dealing with games that were like four K. But once they got bigger than that, it was really, really inconvenient because you just had pages and pages of code. And the slightest uh, entry error meant that you had to go hunt for your typo. Yeah, it just wasn't wasn't that enjoyable. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen the same thing. I've been looking at old Japanese computer magazines, and they had the same thing. But like after a certain point, at like the late, late 80s, like those same sections where they have you type out the code is like, Pages of things that aren't even instructions, just raw data, <laughs> just by pages and pages. Like no one's going to do that. So yeah. So um, yeah. Anyway, jumping into the 1980s, um, you mentioned the 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 uh, ZX80 uh, by Sinclair, which was again kind of. I don't know. Would you would you characterize that as being similar to the Apple II in terms of impact, or was it more like? kind of one of those pre-Apple II computers. Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, really, between the ZX80 and the ZX81, you know, th- those are the machines that really kind of came into the sort of the public consciousness. I think uh, the ZX80 was a little bit early, maybe, um, it, it could, because it sort of wasn't particularly exciting. But then the ZX81 came along, and it could do stuff... Um, you know, you could clearly recognize sort of um, it's actually playing a game, even though it was very basic. It was black and white. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, you could make it do things. You could play text adventures on it. Um, and I think at that point, people kind of went, oh, right, I, I, get, I get a tape. I put it into the back of the machine. I wait five minutes and for the 1K thing to load. And then um, and now I'm doing something with it. And this is exciting. And and so, you know, it was advertised as a sort of this sort of multi-purpose machine, and you know you can use it as a word processor. Um, 
<laughs> as long as you were just writing tweets, I guess. But um, yeah, right. <laughs> but you know the, the, that's when it became a proper computer. So I think most people would remember the ZX eighty one as kind of like probably the Apple II equivalent. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that would make the ZX eighty more like the Apple one, except not made out of wood. <laughs> no, but made out of crappy white plastic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> um, also, also in nineteen eighty was the establishment of Acorn Soft which, of course, produced a lot of content for Acorn computers. And uh, they, they had some major releases in the 80s, including uh, Elite. That was, that was theirs, right? Yes, yes. That was uh, 1984, I believe. Um, you know, came out on the BBC Micro, first of all. And, you know, I mean, that is a, just a phenomenal piece of software um, when you actually look at the kind of the genius of of, of, of the coding behind it, mm. um, you know David Braben did a post mortem GDC not last year, the year before, but and and it's just unbelievable how they managed to kind of create this two hundred and fifty six, uh, you, you know, uh, I, think, not, I don't think it's planets. I think it's actually solar systems. Um, you know, <laughs> in 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 this tiny little computer. Um, you know, wireframe graphics, you can yeah. kind of dogfight and mine and trade. And I think people looked at that and just could not actually believe what they were looking at. I mean, I know I certainly did. <laughs> yeah. I, my friend had a BBC Micro and, you know, it was the sort of the high-end British computer. Mm. Um, you know, you just looked at it and it was like, I, I can't believe this is a 3D thing and I'm flying through space and I'm warping to another planet, you know, I mean, it, there was really I can't think of anything else like it at the time. Yeah, and it helped that it was good. <laughs> it I was mean, good. Yeah, yeah. And I think those are two things that really helped it become a classic. Yeah, and that's um that's kind of making a return as a uh, like an Oculus Rift enabled um, contemporary game or something along those lines, right? I, I know you've been writing about that a lot. Yeah, it's yeah, it's 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 weird actually. I've I've been playing the the beta and. Braben's uh, vision for it really is to recreate the original, but, you know, very, very up up to date. Mm-hmm. And so it actually plays just like the original. It's actually not very friendly, just like the original. You know, <laughs> so you're sitting there like, which button do I press to lower the landing gear so I don't pancake on the, you know, the, yeah. the floor of this space station? So it's kind of got all of that stuff in it. Like, you know, it's, it's very kind of nerdy, but because it's a Kickstarter project, you know, that's that's what he wants to create and that's what the sort of the fans of the original want. So I don't think it's going to be very popular because of the, its nature, but the people that play it just absolutely love it. Yeah, for and, sure. Uh, I've been flying around, and I was trying to find some point in space, and you know, I was flying at it at sort of thirty thousand miles an hour, and I'm like, oh shit, now it's you know ninety thousand miles behind me, <laughs> yeah. and go back the other way. You know, it's 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 a proper space sim, but it's fun. It's yeah. very very cool. <laughs> So uh, moving on to 1981, uh, that was the year that the BBC Micro, which you were just talking about, launched, and uh, that that one's interesting to me because it's really the only it's really the only British computer that I had any personal experience with growing up. Because for some reason, we had Acorn Micros in uh, in my computer lab in in the middle of West Texas, and the only logical explanation I can come up with for that is that. Um, 
uh, Lubbock, Texas was also a home for a large Texas Instruments um, factory and, and manufacturing center. And TI produced some components for the BBC Micro. So I can only assume that, you know, in the late 80s, somehow there was just some kind of surplus or something and a bunch of those ended up at, at Texas Instruments and they were like let's just donate these to the school system and get them out of our warehouse <laughs> I, I honestly have no idea but that's the only explanation I can come up with for the fact that uh, I did a lot of basic programming on, on Acorn computers but um, if, I, if I'm not mistaken the, the BBC Micro was actually got its name because it was designed sort of as a tie-in to jump off the back of a, of a BBC documentary on the rise of the computer. And it was meant, like you said, Jazz, as a sort of a mid-level computer as opposed to the Sinclair computers, which tended to be sort of lower-end entry-level. Yeah, I'm, you know, this hasn't really been documented in any way, um, so this is all anecdotal, but, but I believe there was some desire in the BBC to sort of try and come up with a a BBC standard computer that, that that maybe everybody would adopt, so that you know, just like BBC, you know, owns British Television, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they can they can own the computers. Um, you know, obviously it didn't happen, but uh, but I think that 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 was that was another part of the reason behind this this yeah. thing. Yeah, I've seen the the TV movie that came out a while ago, the Syntax Era. That's sort of about that uh, Acorn guys and trying to make that. Trying to get the the BBC deal, to, you know, to produce this computer as a, uh, in competition with Sinclair. Yeah, but yeah, I didn't actually recall the part about the documentary, although that is interesting. Hmm. I, I don't know. A couple of sites I looked at, including Wikipedia, our friend um, mentioned something about a documentary, <laughs> but I I wasn't able to find it online. I'd I'd be interested in seeing it though. Um, but yeah. I'll have to look up Syntax Era. I've never heard of that, but it sounds really interesting. Yeah, it's from a few years ago. I don't know, Jazz. Besides Elite at your friend's house, did you have much experience with the uh, the BBC Micro? Not a lot. Um, I remember playing Chucky Egg on it, which was uh, kind of at the time it, it was a, you know it was a cool platform game. But actually, retrospectively, it was probably a little bit more significant than than than, than I, I thought it was at the mm-hmm. time. Um, kind of an interesting sort of load runnery sort of a game starring a, a chick collecting eggs um <laughs> as you might expect there was also a game called frack which kind of starred a caveman which is again it was a very slick looking platformer um again great showcase of the bbc i mean the bbc was a really good computer at its, for its time um it was probably somewhere up with the sort of the atari 800 i guess technically um maybe a little bit behind the commodore 64 um but but you know cool but it, it was a premium machine so you know where I I saw it at my friend's house and you know my friend had you know rich parents and they'd bought actually bought it for themselves and uh, I didn't know anybody else that had one because I grew up in a fairly poor area and and you know I think that was the case it sort of was bought by so it was like the middle class computer uh, which is just perfect for a BBC machine yeah for the middle classes <laughs> none of those riffraff they can have their ZX spectrums so it was like the gateway computer of uh, England. Urban. <laughs> yeah. Sure, yeah. <laughs> RIP, I think. Yeah, pretty much. So uh, 1982 then uh, was kind of, I don't know, as far as I can tell, was sort of the breakout year for the UK gaming and, and computer scene. Um, on the software front, you had The Hobbit, which was by Melbourne House and was a um, text adventure 
that I guess was officially licensed by J.R. or Tolkien. He was, was he still alive at that point? I can't remember when he died. Okay, so it was, it was licensed by his I think estate, he died in the but, 70s. Um, I would assume, and not having played it myself, yeah. but I would assume that it was a very authentic take on on The Hobbit. Um, and uh, seems to be really well regarded. That was kind of Melbourne House's first big uh, title. The other, the other big game that year was Football Manager, which was a soccer sim, but it was very much sim as opposed to soccer and was basically just like a lot of text where you managed your team and then they would kind of go to matches and play and based on how well you manage the team that determined the outcome of victory, um, which was, you know, really, really kind of ahead of its time. I mean, that, that simulation element has become pretty big in sports, you know, in the past 15, 20 years. But like at the time, you know, it was really different to something like Atari's football, which was X's and O's that you (laughs) rolled with a trackball. (laughs) Yeah, it was, it was, Interesting. I mean, I, I played that, and you know, when I sat there on the edge of my bed shouting at the screen because you know, sort of the earliest versions were, were text only, and you go to a game, and it would sort of say, you know, player X, you know, whoever your players are, passes, shoots, and there'd be a sort of like a second delay, saved, hmm. and then, and so ah. you kind of had this sort of this match sort of play out over a period of sort of two or three minutes, and then oh. the the the, uh, the ZX Spectrum version. Um, Introduced kind of graphics. So you had these little stick men, and you'd have this sort of little highlight reel of the game <laughs> with the ball being kicked about. And uh, it was. Oh, that's great. I've never seen that. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> you know, I'd sit there and shout, like, you know, your defender that just messed up or your, your star <laughs> player that just knocked the ball in or whatever. And it was. It was uh, just, just a phenomenal game, and you could just, you know, mess around with your team. You get injuries. Uh, it was. Had a lot of parameters that you could could really screw around with formation and everything like that, and 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 because because it had a lot of data in there, I think people really got kind of sucked into the the man, you know, the, the managerial side of things, and um, you know it, it, that series just went on and on and on and on and on and and, and sold a vast amount of copies over the years. Yeah, um, you know, there's a there's a current football manager that I don't actually think is. Related to the old. Oh, I was going to ask about that. I do see that pop up on Steam a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, actually, I haven't kind of looked in into it for uh, you know. Um, but 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 certainly the early ones by Kevin Toms are, um, you know that that was the sort of like the landmark game for, for particularly in the UK, um, where it's called Football Mad. Yeah, and you don't really hear too much about America. I mean, in America, you don't really hear people going crazy for like the sim style sports games it's all like wanting to be active or in the game and or be the quarterback or whoever you know so yeah i mean that's sort of like an interesting take on sort of like a cultural <laughs> difference there <laughs> yeah. i want to play john yeah, i mean every every year ea sports is like oh this year's madden is even more active yeah like they tried like a Madden manager game, but it flopped. Basically, I want to play John Madden Life Probably. Manager, where it's like <laughs> take your blood pressure medication, <laughs> lots, sit down on the couch, lots of bus sequences. Yeah, <laughs> on the uh, on the on the um, hardware side of things in '82, I, I said that the Spectrum was '83 and the C64 was '84, but I was wrong about both. They actually both launched in 1982, mm-hmm. um, so they were kind yeah. of head to head, and they were, you know, sort of two different sides of the computer market. The Spectrum was very inexpensive offered a really cheap entry point to 
color graphics and it became a huge breakout success because so many people bought one that there was tons and tons of software. And, you know, back then it was really easy to create software. So really anyone had the perspective ability to create some really creative, interesting game that caught the zeitgeist and became a breakout hit and uh, made them into video game superstars in the UK. Um, Was it also really easy to pirate software at this point? Oh, yes. <laughs> I knew that was a huge issue uh, with this with this sort of uh, kind of computer. Yes, if you had a twin cassette deck, you ruled the world. <laughs> or if you had two cassette decks and the right cables, you also ruled the world. Nice. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> yeah, the more the merrier. Yes, I, 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 I and my friends made many backup copies of our games. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess that's the risk of not having a proprietary format. You know, yeah, people have I mean, the tools to mess with, you know, the games. Sure, but I mean that also happened here with discs and all yeah. sorts of things. I mean, we also had tape drives, and yeah, it's just it was just one one of those things nobody really thought of <laughs> that hard. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Even even console copiers were a thing that uh, kind of trickled their way outside of Asia. Uh, I remember, I remember in oh man, back when Chrono Trigger came out, uh, a guy I knew uh, in in the computer lab was like, "Hey, can I borrow your game?" Uh, and he brought it back the next day. I was like, "Thanks." <laughs> And I said, wait, did did you play it? And he said, no, I just copied it. Thanks. I, appreciate ah. it. I was like, hey, no, I, <laughs> Jeez, I spent 90 yeah. bucks on that game, you asshole. Yeah, don't do that. Thanks for nothing. <laughs> so I never really <laughs> play video games again. Um, but that, that was actually my first experience because, you know, I, I did so little PC gaming with um, with piracy. But uh, obviously it was it was a really big part of the uh, the market and. I'm sure that had something to do with the appeal of the Spectrum, too. Like, buy a tape cassette, the right kind of tape cassette, and you can have any mm. software you want. Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, you know, growing up in that period, didn't have a lot of money. You know, we'd sort of have a group of friends that would work together. Uh, you know, I would buy one game, another friend would buy another game. So, And we'd all, you know, we'd, we'd end up with a whole bunch of games because we co- kind of coordinated our efforts and um, would then copy them off each other. Or if it, so occasionally you'd get a game that didn't quite copy across for some reason, hmm. um, and then you just share that around. But, but that, yeah, that was part of the appeal. And, you know, if, if, if you look at the magazines of that period, you know, they're filled with, you know, piracy is killing games kind of thing and you know at the end of the day it was that was that was a nonsense in fact if if anything it was promoting games um you know ki- most people were were copying games that they would never buy anyway <laughs> uh, and i think that was that was always the sort of the misnomer was you know yeah. that you talk about how many the value of games that have been pirated per year and it was like well no that's that's just funny money that's just theoretical cash right. you know you take those out of the market and actually look at how much money people have actually got to spend on games, and it's a mere fraction of that. Right. Let's see, 1982 was also the year that um, Acorn released the Acorn Electron, which was the their attempt to kind of jump into the Spectrum market with a lower end system, something more affordable than the uh, the the spec or the um, sorry the the BBC Micro. How well did that do? I've I've heard of the Electron, but I don't really know too much about it. Um, not very well. I mean, it, it, I think 
Yeah, 82 was the sort of the, the big year when you had a whole bunch of people kind of jumping into the marketplace with, with computers, um, you know, the sort of the dragons and the oryx that I was talking about. Um, and, you know, there was sort of like a big bum rush of, to, try and, to try and sort of get some sort of foothold in the market. And, and really the sort of the ZX Spectrum just forged ahead. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the Commodore 64 was a little way behind it, but in terms of the marathon, you know, they both ended up around about the same. Um, but, but, you know, early on the Commodore 64 was, was expensive and, and people could buy their ZX Spectrums and, uh, you know, for, for a... But, 150 quid or whatever it was. Um, and within a kind of year, you know, we did have a sort of a – it wasn't exactly a crash um, like the American market, but there was definitely a kind of a collapse of hardware manufacturers over a very, very rapid space of time, probably like by like late 84 um, – you know, there weren't really many players in the marketplace at all other than uh, Sinclair and, and, and Commodore. Uh, Amstrad, you know, would come out with their computer just uh, a little while later. Um, you know, and then you had sort of uh, emergent sort of early PCs and CPM systems that, um, you know, I was using at the time to sort of word process and do basic mm-hmm. kind of markup for for our magazines, uh, sort of pre-PCs basically. Sure. So, so why do you think the Spectrum did so much better than all these other would have been contenders that that never quite captured its market share? What was it about the Spectrum that that just resonated with people so much? Besides the price, I mean, it sounds like there were other systems around the same time that were about as cheap as the Spectrum, so there had to be something else. Yeah, it's the, it's the old, old, old classic software support. You know, the, the Spectrum came out a little bit before everything else quickly garnered support it was easy to use people jumped onto it uh, the enthusiasts jumped onto it straight away began to start programming for it they began to create games for it and you know that that momentum just very very quickly built up um the same for the commodore 64 you know sort of people jumped onto it began to make games and these other these other systems were just a little bit too late to the market you know some almost nearly built, built up that critical mass you know the dragon did actually did very well but in the end, you know, the sort of the, 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 the trains that left the station at speed were, were the Spectrum and the C64 and, uh, you know, and, and that was it. Everyone else was left fighting over scraps. Yeah. Um, that really Amstrad came in about a year or two later and just cleaned up on, you know, with, with their sort yeah. of all-in-one um, cheap machine. All right, so machine. that makes sense. Um, if 1982 was the year that... Um, sort of the hardware market exploded in the UK. I, I would say 83 was when the software market really came into its own. Um, that was the year Software Projects was established. Um, and I know that they worked on a lot of games. Uh, they did, um, i trying to think, were they the, uh, right, yeah, yeah. And that whole Jet Set Willy series. Um, so they they actually um, kind of jumped in right out of the gate and had a hit because Manic, the company Manic was Minor. established in '83 mm. and Manic mm-hmm. Miner uh, was uh, yes. 1983 also. Yeah, I believe so. Um, yeah, Software Projects was just one very young dude um, who, who made the game. Mm. Matt, Matthew Smith, I think his name is. Um, you know, and he just made this sort of platform game that really. Captured again, captured people's imaginations. It was featured on TV. You know, it was sort of a, a very odd but interesting kind of platform game. Um, 
again, you know, you could look at it and everything was kind of clearly recognizable, so it sort of translated to TV very well. I think, you know, some games were very interpretive at the time. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, abstracted. And he had, you know, his, he had a dude walking backwards and forwards and other things, like little machines running around and... <laughs> So people looked at it and kind of went, "Oh wow, that's 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 really cool." Yeah. You know? And I, and I think, you know, you just had a few games sort of coming through that that really did showcase these systems as as not kind of janky kind of old computers, but actually, wow, you know, this is really quite capable. You know, you had an early flight simulator come out at the time. Um, I think you know, again, people looked at that even though it was a bit jerky and stuff, but but. But they looked at it and kind of went, "Wow, this computer can really do things." Yeah, you know, text adventures. Uh, like Jeremy said, "The Hobbit." You know, that I think that really again, a, a kind of a literary name giving credibility to a computer. You could kind of play mm-hmm. the game, and 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 it did follow the the sort of the book. It had some really odd bugs in it too. But but if you played it, you know, you could get a real sense of the the entire book from playing through it. Yeah, I'm sure that really adds a dimension of you know uh, appeal to it as opposed to like the book or even like a radio drama or something. People can look at that. It's like, oh, I can actually influence something here. I can be part of this story. <laughs> Perhaps I've dreamed of that forever. I don't know. Yeah, that yeah. reminds me of the Infocom games with the uh, Douglas Adams connection. Yeah, for sure. All that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think you know, in the early days, you know, you talk about those computers and and you really had to want to mess around with a computer to. To, to mess around with them, yeah. um, they were unfriendly and horrible. And then suddenly, you, you know, and I think it happened in the states too, but a little bit earlier, just software came along that that people could relate to, and yeah. that's all it requires is like that connection of like going, "Aha!" Suddenly, yeah. the computer is my friend, mm-hmm. and and that's that's what you need. Yeah. Again, they'll look at Manning Miner and go, "Oh, look, a person." <laughs> yes, a little. <laughs> it can do that. <laughs> it's not just an O or an X. This is kind of an aside. I don't know if you guys have watched any of the TV series uh, Halt and Catch Fire on AMC, but it's a... Uh, oh, not yet. I have not. Yes. It's it's a uh, it's a little hit or miss. It, like, it really wants to be Mad Men, but it's not that good. But it's interesting because, at least for me, because it really explores the, uh, the sort of computer scene in development in like 1982, 83... And it actually, like, the plot points actually touch a lot on some of the stuff we're talking about. Like, this, the most recent episode last week was about, like, developing an operating system that felt conversational and made the computer seem responsive and, and, and you know, something that people could relate to as opposed to just a cold text prompt. Um, so it's not really here or there, but it's just interesting to hear some of the points that have come up in this conversation that really do kind of resonate with that show. So maybe not such a great piece of drama, but a very good piece of tech history in a sort of imaginative, speculative, alternate future way. Mm-hmm. Alternate past history, yes. Yeah, it is interesting because when the com- sort of the, the mid-'80s computers came along, the mid-'80s 16-bit computers, you know, they had sort of a Windows-type operating system and you know, people hadn't really used that that much in, in in the UK, and they were really touted as being this you know friendly next big thing, and and it just didn't quite. It took years for that to kind of get into the public consciousness and sort of uh, and people just to sort of inherently understand mm-hmm. Windows. I mean, I remember using an Atari ST for the first time and trying to click on a window and nothing was happening because I wasn't clicking fast enough and <laughs> you know it was just like what I don't get I don't get what I'm looking at you know can't I can't make that kind of intellectual leap yet sure 
So also in 1983, we had, um, you, you mentioned uh, Manic Miner, but there was also Jetpack, which was kind of uh, Ultimate Play the Game's first big breakout. And I don't think I mentioned them. They they launched in, uh, they, they, they were established in 1982. Ultimate Play the Game obviously became Rare Limited, which now belongs to Microsoft. But they were kind of like the big movers and shakers in a lot of, uh, in a lot of senses in the UK in the 80s, and then became kind of big names for Nintendo. And, and were one of the few companies to really successfully make that transition from uh, British microcomputers to Japanese consoles, and now I guess American consoles. Yeah, I think that's because they made like twenty percent of Nintendo's library <laughs> under different publishers. Um, yeah, it was. It, they were like the number one contractors uh, for Western studios. Yeah. Like Atlas did some some outsourcing for like LJN, I think, and Acclaim. Yeah, um, they did, but. Yeah, it was kind of like if you were an American publisher and you wanted a game for Nintendo, you went to Rare and said, hey, can you guys yeah. do this for us? Can you make 50 versions of Jeopardy? Great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks. thanks. Oh, yeah, guys. they did make all those it. game show yeah. things, yeah. Yeah, it's hilarious. The of the West. The, yeah, Rare, really, they're the mo- they were the most successful British company by a huge margin yeah. at the time, mm-hmm. and nobody even knew they existed at that point. Mm-hmm. Everyone thought they'd gone bust and you know gone away. <laughs> really? But actually, they were just making bank. Yeah, they just... Sort of, uh, I think, when was it, 86, they began to, 85, 86, they began to make negotiations into this new Nintendo system. Uh, Didn't they make um, Slalom? Yeah, that was like the first. pretty early. Yeah. RC Pro-Am and Mm -hmm. that funny little snake game. (laughs) Didn't they? They did Battletoads as well, right? Oh, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Snake Rattle and Roll. Snake Rattle and Roll. That's uh, They did, which also had a snake level. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They made a double dragon game. With, yeah. with Battletoads, oh, but still. Yeah. <laughs> they did a platform game, too. Wizards. Oh, Wizards and Warriors. Wizards yeah, there's like an Warriors. entire trilogy. Yeah. I'm not sure if they yeah. made all of those, but they made the first one, at least. Uh, but I would say, you know, looking at like their their Spectrum output and some of the other computer stuff, like I, I, so, I could... So Rare was the company oh dear, where... <laughs> no, I, I can... I can sort of see that their games are a bit more artistic than the other stuff that was out there, and I think that really, you know, helped people to sort of like pay attention to them, and sort of would help their games sort of get up there. Yeah, the graphics weren't just representational; they were trying to do something up yeah, more than that. At least in those early days. Yeah, yeah, they they very they were smart. They they yeah. worked their way around the the spectrum's kind of graphical limitations. You could only display two colors, I think it was, in a eight by eight pixel grid something uh. <laughs> like that and and so what would happen is you get a lot of games would get a tribute clash so if you had two colors and then they would it would go into another pixel something would have to give and things would change color and you just get this very ugly kind of looking effect yeah. <laughs> and they kind of figured their way around by creating sort of space um, they also used monochromatic graphics very cleverly and so you ended up with kind of things like title screens that just looked fantastic because <laughs> they were using colors very intelligently. Um, you know, I remember looking at uh, Cookie, which is a sort of this funny sort of arcade game um, that they, they made. And, uh, you know, I thought it looked like a photograph at the time. You know, it was like, <laughs> you, know you could just see every, everything that they were trying to make. You know, this guy with a chef hat and he's yeah. running around with this thing. And, you know, very, very cool. And, you know, Luna Jetman... That just looked phenomenal at the time because it um, it was really smooth. You know, some games were still being kind of done in basic at the time or sort of were not particularly well compiled. These guys seemed to sort of, you know, it was just like, it felt like an arcade game. It was, yeah. it was you know, super slick, super smooth. Um, they actually managed to coax some nice sound effects out of the spectrum 
which was terrible yeah. at sound effects. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like they're kind of they're kind of big breakout or like they're defining games where the um the Underworld, Saberwolf, Nightlore trilogy, which debuted in 1984 and really kind of established uh, isometric platformers as a thing, like to the point that some of those even showed up on, uh, you know, like Japanese developers doing them for Nintendo NES and Super NES and, and uh, Landstalker was probably inspired by that sort of thing. Um, these sort of like free roaming puzzle platform exploratory type games where you had to navigate this um it almost looked a little bit like crystal castles yeah but uh it was much more like of of an adventure as opposed to just you know the classic one screen arcade game i think uh Um, and those like one of the first or maybe the first batman game was an isometric um yep it was it was a big old ripoff of of, uh (laughs) Uh yeah i mean so night law was the first one that they did um Interesting. Legend has it that they actually made the game Nightlaw some months, some considerable months before it was actually released, and they sat on it because they um, they didn't think the market was ready for it, and that they could kind of make bang out another kind of quick and easy adventure game in the form of Saber Wolf and make bank off that. Before they released this new technology, because they knew that as soon as they released Nightlaw with its sort of isometric 3D, that that's what all the people would want. And actually, that that, that became true. And, <laughs> um, you know, Night, Nightlaw, I, th- I believe it was one of the kind of the most copied concepts in terms of the sort of the 3D isometric single screen games. I, I certainly remember sort of in, you know, 85, 86, 87. Everybody was kind of making that kind of game. It was crazy, and 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 it yeah. really did sort of uh, have a significant impact on the industry in terms of you know what people wanted to play. Hmm. Yeah, it was kind of the Spectrum's Super Mario Brothers in terms yeah. of how many games played like it. Yeah, definitely, and you know, Jetpack did really really well at the time. Um, I think I think it sold about. To about sixty percent of all Spectrum users, hmm. which yeah. you know is phenomenal. So I think at that time there were about a million Spectrum users when it came out. They've been sold, um, and then Nightlaw. I don't know the sales figures on, but I know that they put the price up to. I think it was ten pounds at the time when most games were sort of like six six mm-hmm. quid, um, and they 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 just made a just enormous <laughs> amount of money out of it. You know, everybody wanted it. <laughs> So um, something you, you mentioned something about their um, their NES connection. Were they the company that actually sort of reverse engineered the NES and went to Nintendo and said, "Hey, look what we did. We want to make games for you now." I think that was the case with Slalom. I'm pretty sure. Um, yeah. I don't know if you guys know, but I, I do remember that anecdote. Like they came to Nintendo, like, "Look what we can do with your hardware," and it was Slalom, which for the time was pretty you know convincing that 3D effect. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty much that's the story. That's pretty rad. That's yeah. what I believe too. And then there was an arcade version with actual skis, although I don't know if Rare did that one too. <laughs> oh. I don't think I've ever seen the arcade version. Was that no. like Play Choice 10 or was it actually a standalone slalom? It was a standalone uh, machine. I, I was in my arcade, and that's the only place I've ever seen it. Uh, by my arcade, I mean the one that was by my house when I grew up. Mm-hmm. Right. At huh. the mall. Interesting. Uh, yeah, anyway, so let's um, let's kind of wrap up our, our chronological tour of the UK's gaming scene. 1984... Um, the Amstrad CPC launched, and uh, that was, I guess, kind of the final big PC of the of the era. Um, and that one actually, from what I understand, it, it sort of reversed the approach uh, of of other 
um, computers. It was like, yeah, we can do games, but also we can do business stuff. And oh yeah, look, we have a real keyboard oh. with actual buttons <laughs> as opposed to a horrible little membrane. So check this out. We're pretty rad. Oh God, yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Just, yeah, I think it had an integrated uh, cassette player on, on board too. Right. And yeah, it was it was kind of a precursor to the all-in-one design that uh, the Macintosh debuted. Yeah. And you know, it was it was by by Amstrad who I don't know what the equivalent would be out here. Um yeah, kind of maybe a sort of a zenith, famous for sort of cheap like TRS. Oh, oh, maybe yeah. kind of cheap, cheaper but decent stuff. Okay, yeah, uh, electronics wise. Yeah, and um, it was a little bit late to the market, but but as Jeremy points out, you know, it it had this sort of extra cachet in terms of it's a real computer and. You know, it had a sort of a monitor, so it had this sort of PC-like feel. It allowed them to market it like, like, uh, you know, a Mac. So, so it really was a very, very, very poor man's Mac. Really, um, I believe it was CPM based, which is kind of like the uh, in an alternate reality, CPM is powering every PC these days. Uh, CPM. Um, the, the IBM were going to buy it, but they ended up going with Bill Gates's. DOS system right. at the time, yeah. <laughs> um, and it, you know it was a, it was a pretty good computer. It did games pretty well. It was somewhere between the ZX Spectrum and the Commodore sixty four in terms of ability. Um, and in fact, Amstrad ended up buying the Sinclair Spectrum yeah. when when it sort of in its latter years um, and kind of sort of produced different versions of it, trying mm. to capture the market. In fact, the, the, the in the very late nineties, as, as to try and sort of wring the last last bits of life out of the Amstrad, they created an Amstrad console to compete with um, things like the Mega Drive and the SNES, which was not wow. a very good idea. <laughs> no. And it was basically it was a, an Amstrad computer in a box that looked all right. Um, that was an Amstrad computer, only you would have to buy expensive cartridge games to put into it, ah, which yes. were actually the same games that you could buy on tape and put into your yeah. Amstrad CPC for next to nothing. <laughs> and, yeah, that thing is actually now quite collectible because mm. it's so rare. Mm-hmm. I think you could play it on the Internet Archive. Um, they have, like, a console section. You can try out those games. There. Oh, really? Amstrad games, okay. yeah. Yeah, I actually like the I like the aesthetic of the Amstrad CPC games. Like, just, you know, the color use, just the pixels themselves I think you know just look pretty good compared to the other previous stuff um, sort of, I think the same way of like the Atari 800 which I think was probably its closest sort of, sort of counterpart here yeah just like one of those uh, good middle to higher end 8-bit computers yeah I think that helped them yeah, it did um, the the rare games incredibly well. Those isometric games, it did incredibly well because it had that a bit of extra oomph. Yeah. So it kind of there's there's a game called Head Over Heels, which um, was by Ocean that features two different characters that can kind of work together. One can jump higher. I forget what the other one can do, but um, mm-hmm. um, you know, again, great great piece of software and um, very 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 fun. Yeah. Nineteen eighty. Sorry. 1984 also saw the debut of uh, two different companies, U.S. Gold and Cygnosis. U.S. Gold was uh, established to basically kind of import American games and bring them over and convert them to U.K. platforms on the cheap, you know, make them 
uh, kind of priced more in the range of UK software, what people were expecting to pay over there, as opposed to uh, what people were paying in America, which tended to be, you know, a lot more like $30 or so, as opposed to, what'd you say, six or 10 pounds? Yeah. I mostly associate U.S. Gold with really bad uh, Genesis games. Yeah, after it did a few years, become that. Yes. Yeah, over here they were more like UK Brown because. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's awesome. They published nice. Strider Returns and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, and then Psygnosis was kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. They were like pretty mm-hmm. much the boutique brand. They made incredibly elaborately beautiful games that maybe weren't that fun, but my God, they looked so good. And also yeah. I have a, a, a soft spot for them because they kept Roger Dean working, doing cover art after Yes went like new wave and stopped using <laughs> crazy surreal landscapes in their covers. Hmm. They were like, oh, sorry about 90120 uh, or 90125, sorry. Um, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll keep you doing these like crazy lettering and, and like floating islands and stuff. Go ahead, Roger. We, we, we got your back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Shadow the Beast, you know, was very much influenced by his graphical style and mm. obviously the packaging was all Roger Dean. Yeah, Signosis are a funny bunch because, um, you know, obviously they went on to become bought by Sony, but they actually started out as, as sort of at least bits of them as, as Imagine Software, which uh, was an early big um, ZX Spectrum publisher that um, made some very successful games, but then kind of really badly overreached. They they were going to make these two games called uh, Cyclops and Bandersnatch, and they advertised them incessantly <laughs> in very odd advertising, kind of, you know, it just it's coming, you know, as a minimalist, and then sort of, you know, showing the programmers with a bunch of other programmers behind them saying, we've just bought in new programmers to, 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 to create this game because by this time it's already six months late. Oh, dear. And it just sort of everything just fell apart and mm. uh, these games never happened and uh, sort of so so bits of the the company went on to to, to form Psygnosis and yeah, didn't, uh, didn't Psygnosis like take parts of those two games and combine them into one game and release that as some I can't even remember what the name what the game was called but it was like some weird conglomerate of the other two names yeah they, they, they did have all the ideas in there I can't remember what it was called either Oh, I have some uh, some trivia for you, '90s kids. Psygnosis <laughs> made the uh, proprietary games on Nick Arcade yes. and like the Game Board, and there were also a lot of Psygnosis games on Nick Arcade because no, none of those kids could play Shadow of the Beast. Yeah, right. I, I noticed, and uh, I don't think I could either because it was pretty hard. Yeah, yeah. Shadow of the Beast was actually kind of terrible. Yeah, like, I, oh, it, was awful. it just we it can wasn't go there. fun to play. <laughs> That's right. We said it. Just, oh no! It looked, yeah, it looked so nice. It, it's like, so I just, beautiful. I just yeah. like to watch the attract mode more than I like to play it. It's fun I to watch a long place. Of that game. Oh yeah, I'll have yeah. to check that out. I, I used to just go to the um, the Walden software and sit in front of the Amiga that was playing just <laughs> the most jaw droppingly gorgeous video game I'd ever seen. And I tried yeah. the demo and, and was like, "Wow, this isn't fun." But oh, I'll just watch the the attract mode. This is great. I, actually, at my software, etc., they always had Show of the Beast on uh, back when they would demo computers for people, and that was that in Lemmings yeah. uh, for Amiga. I'm pretty sure. Sure. Yeah, I remember having a lot of. Uh, Taken a lot of flack from delusional Amiga owners because of, of my <laughs> comments about Shadow the Beast being absolutely terrible, and they were like, "No, nope, it's the best thing ever." Right. Or absolutely, and I'm not seeing it any other way. <laughs> it has so many graphics. Right. The yes. argument's like, well, look, just look at it. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yeah. Are they still making that reboot? I wonder. Hmm. I didn't hear about it. Was it announced like last E3? I don't know. It probably went the way of the the Toki. <laughs> oh God, that's right. <laughs> was was Galgotha doing that one also? No, Galgotha? it's no, no. It was like a Sony studio making it. Oh, I guess that makes sense. Okay, 
Um, it's probably being combined with uh, The Last Guardian into a new sure. game that <laughs> the studio will produce. Sure. History repeats itself over and over again. With new art by Roger Dean. <laughs> I'd, I'd buy that. Okay. Yeah. Um, by the way, yeah, so, US Gold. The um, US Gold were an interesting bunch because they did start off, as, as he said, as a... Uh, sort of like an importer of, of 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 pretty damn cool American games at the time. I mean, I remember you know sort of playing some of the Epic's games, particularly. Okay. Um, yeah. uh, Impossible Mission was fantastic, yeah. uh, and and then they began to to produce their own games, and they were just a bit rubbish at it, and yeah. and and they they. They were quite successful and began to sort of buy up arcade licenses, and there, there was definitely a kind of quite a patch where you know arcade licenses are obviously huge in in, in the UK, um, and they would use tier text and these these you know utter uh-huh. stinking conversions of of of, of the, the, the sort of you know fairly famous coin ops. They did a version of Street Fighter, which was I remember sitting down and literally pressing one button just the low kick button and beating the entire game and kind of going, all right, the, 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 this review is going to be easy. Um, but yeah, then they, then they went on to become a part of IDOS, which is sort of, you know, Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. I think I forget who it was them and Domark. So does Square Enix hold all those licenses now? Hmm. I guess. I wonder maybe a couple from whatever they produced internally or whatever. Yeah. I don't know if they had a sort of like a, a limited, you hold this license for a certain amount of time or yeah. whatever. But um yeah, now now thinking about it, looking through US Gold's back catalog, they, they they must they must own some of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's a feature right there. Who owns what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually that's probably a, a life commitment right there, figuring all that out. Yeah, it's a season. Yeah, so so kind of at the the middle of the '80s is when the big revolutionary things sort of stopped happening. I feel in the UK, and and like there would be good games after that, but it was kind of like all the the really big stuff happened in the first half of the '80s, and everything that happened after that was just sort of you know like inertia, kind of the m- m- momentum being maintained. I guess you could say. Yeah, I think. Um you know, sort of when I certainly joined the publishing industry, 85, you know, it was, I think it was still gaining momentum in terms of software releases, software quality, and that kind of continued through until about 86, 87. I think that's when he began to, those sort of those technical leaps, you know, talking about sprites in the border and, and, and sort of rest of interrupts and all this kind of nonsense. Um, I think by about 87, certainly into 88, things were really beginning to wind down. Um, users weren't transitioning to the 16-bit computers in, in any amount of numbers that, 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 that was the industry had predicted. I think a lot of the big British publishing companies had sort of bet themselves on the transition to 16-bit didn't either weren't aware of or kind of was sort of largely dismissing what was happening in the U- in the US except the really smart ones mm. um 
So, so, so you had you know a few smart companies sort of hook up with American companies to become developers for for, for U.S. companies, you know, particularly uh, and rare, you know, sort of set themselves up completely. Right. And then you just had a sort of a little bit of a decline, really, uh, in the in the in the late '80s. Not a huge decline, but but think you know interest began to dip, and and that's that's when. The consoles began to take up the slack, and 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 really, sort of through eighty nine to sort of ninety one, there was just this huge tipping point where there were a couple of Christmases where everyone wanted a console. Mm. You know, if you were a gamer, you got a console, and um, you know, you had a lot of exciting stuff. You had sort of like the cheap eight bit consoles if you wanted a if you couldn't afford a, an expensive one. Or you'd buy the 16-bit console if you had the money, and um, it was sort of annoying at the time to sort of be to have a console and have people like me saying, "Holy shit, this is an awesome game that we just played from Japan, and and, and it's brilliant." <laughs> and and you knew that you weren't going to see it for another six months yeah. or a year. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was that was crazy. I mean, we were having. Uh, I'm trying to remember, but I think I've reviewed like Metroid in 1989. That's when it was released officially wow. in the UK. And so, so I mean, there was just these huge lags. It, it and it would take quite a few more years to kind of finally catch up. But um, it was only when the sort of, particularly with Nintendo, the the American market began to wind down a bit that they finally kind of went, "Oh, Europe, yeah, that's worth a bit so of money." You guys exist. That's right. Yeah. Right. Um, and of course, Sony had already sort of knew that and and, and aggressively pushed. The PlayStation, you know, sort of late in ninety five, ninety six in the UK, and 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 that became hugely successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, through that throughout the, uh, the the latter half of the eighties, there were only a few, uh, I feel, significant companies that they got their start: Codemasters, Bullfrog, DMA Design, companies that you know, like I think people all over the world have heard of. Codemasters is actually still around under the name Codemasters, which is. Kind of uh, like there's not a lot of, of, of UK 80s companies that you can say that for, I guess, um, rare. But I mean, they're even kind of a division right now. Codemasters is still independent, right? Yeah, they, they are this, they're, they're amazingly. Um, they've done very well for themselves because, yeah. I mean, they started off as... Uh, yeah, they still just make racing games. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they were the, sort of the Oliver Twins, basically. And they started in the mm-hmm. sort of uh, just... Uh, l- just before the mid '80s, you know, sort of like '84, I think it was, and 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 they were sort of like the archetypal whiz kids. Look, you know, there's a couple of young seventeen-year-old oh, lads right. have made their own company, and um, they made a whole series of games called Dizzy, starring mm. this egg called Dizzy. Yeah. Which, oh god, I can freaking stand <laughs> that game. It's just horrible. But, but <laughs> it really did push it. Yeah, but, yeah but I mean, kids did, did love come it. Here. Yeah. <laughs> I think they actually did a reboot on mobile recently mm. oh sure i think so yeah yeah um codemasters i think had an american division called camerica is that were, were they one of the same uh were they uh, yeah pretty much because like everything camerica published was pretty much yeah codemasters games so i mean they did micro machines and they did uh dizzy games for nes so they also were they ultimate stuntman as well uh, yes okay yeah i've always assumed that they were just one of the same maybe it was not quite that way, but in any case, yeah, I mean, those those games, there's some familiarity. Bullfrog obviously made made huge splashes in the PC market um, with, you know, all of Peter Molyneux's crazy, big visionary games like uh, 
Populous, Magic Carpet, um, was Syndicate a Bullfrog game? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Lots of... Uh, theme Park know, as of, well. Like, yeah, yeah. Big classics. And uh, Of course, DMA Design is still around under the name Rockstar North, still making GTA games. <laughs> um, and of course, former DMA Design lead designer David Jones is working with Microsoft now on a new Crackdown. So there's, you know, you can you can definitely see the influence of these uh these studios and publishers uh lasting even today right yeah codemasters has a game called dizzy prince of the yoke folk on the ios store <laughs> with only with only seven <laughs> reviews or seven ratings so I'm, I'm guessing the dizzy brand does not carry the same cloud it once did uh, apparently not people just don't like eggs anymore no nope. no nope. cholesterol <laughs> They're actually a superfood, you know. Mm, that's true. Maybe that's the problem. People are, would rather eat eggs than, than uh, play with them. <laughs> we need to turn around this image. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So anyway, um, some other kind of big games that we haven't mentioned um, that, that came out of the UK in the 80s. Um, School Days, 1984. Um, inspiration for Bully. Oh, yeah. Did you ever play that one? Yeah. Yeah, it was a kind of um, platform-looking game. With a sort of a school that you could see through and you'd walk around and, you know, kind of do things, similar things that you do in Bully, yeah. basically. Um, clever game. Uh, there was Barbarian, which was kind of a, an early fighting game. came out around the same time as the original Street Fighter. And it was like super gory and lots of sex in the advertising and, and the graphics. Yeah, they used a uh, page three model uh, from the, the <laughs> Sun and newspaper that uh, has on page three every day a mm. topless young lady. <laughs> and uh, so they, I think they, it was Maria Whitaker that they used, um, showing her assets with some sweaty, beefy dude behind her holding a big erect sword. No <laughs> symbolism at <Yeah>. all. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously a game that sold mainly on its gameplay. Yeah, of course. <laughs> right. Yeah, that had, um, uh, I think it was the sequel that had the famous beheading maneuver. You could you could sort of do uh, this spinning maneuver and cut hmm. your opponent's head off and then and then a, a little dwarf would come out and was, drag the body off and kick the head like a football. Uh, it was kind of entertaining. Did uh did the UK freak out about violence as much as they did about violence in movies because there was the whole video nasties list where things that weren't I, I don't consider that extreme. Things that are funny, like Evil Dead were on. It was like a list of movies that were quote-unquote banned. I'm not sure how banned they really were, but was there something similar with video games, like a similar like outrage? I mean, we had stuff like that in America with Tipper Gore and the parental advisory thing and, you know, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was the same in the UK, you know, sort of concerned mothers. Um, yeah, I did a couple of chat shows sort of uh, uh, kind of probably sort of um, – between the mid to late 80s and and very quickly realized that you should never do chat shows because <laughs> you can't win no matter yeah. how logical you are. Some screaming are mother saying, but my little Johnny spends all day upstairs and never comes downstairs. You know, hmm. the answer to that is, well, you're a crap parent. That's why. <laughs> or consider the advantages of that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, if, nothing was really banned per se, but, but you know, there was just a lot of, you know, a lot of, Bullshit, yeah. You know, yeah. articles, particularly from the tabloids about you know computer addiction was the thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little bit less worried about the violence aspect until it became a bit more visceral. Mm. You know, uh, once you could, and that's when you had teenage mutant hero turtles. Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because ninjas are 
in, I don't know. I, I just still just can't fathom that one. Why <laughs> why ninjas are are seen as, as as a particularly bad thing? Yeah, it was a dark period of British history when the ninjas came. <laughs> yeah, it was quickly covered up by the government. Right. Yeah, they they totally flip out and kill everyone. <laughs> That's what ninjas do. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> Um, I guess that's pretty much it for my list of games. I, I do I do have a notation here that Dizzy is the ultimate cartoon adventure. Jazz, it seems like you take exception to that description. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It is a, not the ultimate. It is barely a cartoon adventure. It is a crappy platform game starring an egg. And, that, <laughs> and, and it is as exciting as it sounds. And no doubt I will uh, incur the wrath of, uh, of, of, of at least three ZX Spectrum owners who remember the game fondly. Some one-star reviews from, from uh, Dizzy fans. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> the only person the same, that's Dizzy the same here is Julian Rignall. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the same seven people who rated the iOS game are going to give us terrible ratings. Oh, yes. On yeah, yeah. On iTunes. <laughs> Um, We're sorry, guys. So that really that, that kind of covers everything I wanted to talk about in terms of UK gaming in the eighties. There may be some things that I missed. Jazz, I don't know. Have I have I kind of failed to touch on anything that's significant that you can think of? Uh, I kind of wanted to wrap this up by talking about sort of how the transition happened in the nineties to different kinds of gaming, but we already touched on that, so I, I don't really have anything else to add. Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know we've, we've certainly covered everything. You know, it, I think some of the surprising things were really the the speed at which the 16-bit computer market collapsed. Mm. Um, mm. That was quite astonishing. You know, they were sort of they were still in with a chance in 1990, 91, and then by 93 they were just pretty much. It you know the market was flat yeah. and, and 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 falling, and and at that point everyone knew that they were done and dusted. Um, and somehow the longevity of the 8-bit computers that kind of just people still played for years and years and years and and that sort of also just find very surprising you know that the, the, there seemed to be a certain sort of person that was just sort of happy playing that kind of technology and as long as they could get a few new games would keep playing on you know either c64 or yeah. the expected yeah. That's not surprising. I mean, when I when I fly, people are still playing solitaire on their iPhone. So like some some things never die. Really, like some people sure. some experiences people always want to have. Yeah. So. What if you saw someone playing like an old Game Boy? Uh, you know what? I don't see that, but I want who, to see who that. Didn't look ex- too much like a hipster. Yeah, yeah. I think in certain neighborhoods <laughs> in SF, we can probably investigate. Right. Yeah. As long <laughs> if they were playing a uh, Tetris, I could certainly understand that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Sure. I mean, I think even Steve Wozniak still carries like three old Game Boys to play Tetris on or something. Wow. <laughs> but he's kind of a hipster. Yeah, well, I guess so. <laughs> but he, he earned it. He yeah, true. Like hipster. Grandfather Unlike of the hipsters. the rest of us. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess that is pretty much all that I wanted to say. Um, maybe we'll do a follow-up someday, but... Yeah, but uh, yeah, I feel like the the UK gaming scene in the eighties is is actually really interesting. But at the same time, for people who weren't there and in the thick of it, it's also really hard to get into those games because yeah, they are on yeah. such a very specific kind of technology and have a kind of design that honestly tends to feel pretty dated now. Which you know, like that's that's true of a lot of things from the early eighties. But um, I really think that you know you had to be kind of immersed in this sort of technology and the sort of design to really get it and maybe i'm just not being fair but that seems to be kind of the perception from most 
non-British people I've talked to, so I don't feel like I'm alone in saying that. Uh, I, th- no. I think that, I think that's no, it's definitely a fair assessment. I mean, it was you know something to really take into account. You know, I've touched on sort of uh, the recession and money, and and the fact that you know Britain was a fairly poor country at that throughout the eighties, and you know games were made to be really, really bloody hard because people would be buying games maybe one every couple of months. Mm. You know, I mean, if you were buying one game a month, you're doing really well. And, you know, conversely, in, in the States, people buying two-plus games a month on average. So if you made a game that was too easy, and, you know, you particularly when you're looking at, you know, these early computers that, you know, maybe you could have sort of, in the case of Bounty Miner, 20 screens, woo! <laughs> um, those 20 screens would have to be tough. Yeah. And so the first one's tough enough. And then, you know, by the end of it, you're sort of having to make pixel-perfect jumps over collapsing platforms, jumping over moving objects, and, you know, it requires like 150 tries to, to, to get it. But that's value for money right there. And, and of course, you know, looking back at that, it's, it's a hideous prospect to have to play <laughs> something like that. I mean, I... Whenever I play some of those old Spectrum games, it's just like it just blows my mind that like, oh right, it's this hard, yeah, and yeah. and somehow I just kept playing. I would play this for two or three days solidly until I got through it. Yeah. Um, no, no way I can do that now without disemboweling myself <laughs> after yeah. an hour. And that yeah. that really explains where Battletoads came from. I think. Oh Jesus Christ! Uh, one of the most infamously hard, <laughs> difficult video games for NES. Was by Rare, who kind of you know, like they they brought that that hey everything should be super hard attitude over to uh, to the NES, and and by that point I think most Japanese developers yeah. moved away from that. But Battletoads, Cobra Triangle, uh, is that the That's one, one with the boat? Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The racer yeah. Rare had no yeah, excuse. Yeah. Like a lot of a lot of the games they did, yeah, they were just like, hey, screw you, you're gonna die a lot, yeah. and you're gonna yeah. Like but it. I do think Battletoads in particular does have some nice. Level design in it. I mean, it's sure it's hard, but it's sort of like smartly done, <laughs> as opposed to like some of the old, you know, microcomputer stuff that was just like. I guess you, know, you going always through a thrasher. Yeah, like you always knew why it was screwing you, even if you didn't like it. Right. But it's like, oh, why that jump should have worked or whatever in some yeah. of the older games. Yeah. I'd say it's perfect because it's still, you know, it had some quirks and buggy things to it. Yeah. 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 No, I agree with that. Um, yeah, I remember playing it and playing it a lot, and and. It was definitely a kind of a skill-based game rather than a death by random pixel game. Yeah. But but those sort of getting through things were just it was so tightly wound. It's oh, like yeah. you're True. off by a couple of pixels. Yeah, you have or like you... two frames to maneuver between things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you got your value for money out of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, those are fun speedruns to watch as well. All right. So um, yeah, I guess that's it for this episode. I will say that if you're really eager to learn more about and immerse yourself in the history of, of uh, British games, I would check out Retro Magazine, or sorry, Retro Gamer Magazine, um, which is UK-based and really, really gets into the minutia of, uh, of that gaming scene, especially now that it's like 150 50 issues in. I mean, you can only write about Dizzy so many times. So now they're finding like mm-hmm. two dudes who made a game while they, you know, they coded <laughs> oh. a game in a garage and some town, you know, way out in Scotland, and it was bought by 15 people. Yeah. Right. That's like cover story. That's like point. one of their monthly features. Um, <laughs> yeah, so so there's there's a lot of history there, and yeah. um, I haven't read the magazine as much anymore or, uh, lately just because I am one of those terrible people who doesn't really ma- read magazines, but 
there's there's a there's a lot of good stuff in that uh, publication, and you can get <laughs> really terrible PDF versions on the uh, the iTunes store. So that's one way to check out the back issues. Yeah, I don't see it anymore now that bookstores have died. I just don't ever encounter it. But I used to read it all the time and would read about these like purple and green games that were isometric I'd never seen before. <laughs> like, what the heck? Yeah, you can get the mag on. Uh, they now do it on iOS oh, yeah. officially. Right. So if you if you that way inclined. But yeah, it is crazy. Um, the science behind the shape of dizzy. Fifteen pages. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! Even Mario didn't get that much. <laughs> uh. Um, yeah, so anyway, um, that's Retronauts episode 25. God bless old Blighty. Um, we, uh, what am I going to say? All right, we'll be back again next week with another episode of Retronauts. But let's go through the usual patter of who we are and all that stuff. I'm Jeremy Parrish. You can find me on Twitter at GameSpite. I write at usgamer.net. I do other stuff on the internet. It's exciting. Oh, I can go. Hey, I'm Bob Mackey. You can find me on Twitter at Bob Servo, B-O-B-S-C-R-V-O. I also write for US Gamer and something awful. And I just wanted to say thanks, Thatcher. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am Ray Barnhold on Twitter, R D B A A A. Uh I don't have anything cool to tell you about right now. <laughs> what? Not even scroll? Not uh, bleh, bleh. yes, always. Okay. Scroll to VG, you know that. And I am the one-off Jazz Rignall at Jazz Rignall at Twitter. And I do some writing at a usgamer.net. And you can find Retronauts at retronauts.com, where you'll find some notations about this episode and many others. Um, you can find us on Twitch TV as Retronauts. You can find us on Twitter as Retronauts. You can find us on uh, what other social media formats? Facebook. Facebook is Retronauts, yes. Uh, download our episodes from iTunes and give us thumbs up and five stars and all those neat things because you love us. And um, on MySpace too. Oh yeah, MySpace. Uh, Six Tinder. degrees. Yeah. Friendster. Oh dear. Uh, yeah. <laughs> check us. Check us out on Match. dot com. Um, <laughs> J date. <laughs> I don't think any of us are Jewish, so don't tell them. <laughs> Anyway, uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll be back next week. Bye.